being an ancient text copied uh, by hand from one generation to another, there are places where the text got scrambled, uh, and it's very hard to unscramble it. Maybe the best example in the Hebrew Bible is Job. I mean, Job is a very powerful book, brilliant poetry, maybe the most brilliant poetry in the whole Hebrew Bible. But the Job poet uses a much bigger vocabulary than any other biblical poet, which means that he's often uses words that don't appear anywhere else. And the ancient scribes, when what a scribe does when he's copying a text, if he comes across a word that is unfamiliar to him, he may substitute a familiar word and by that scramble the text, or, or he may simply get confused and, and do something odd with, with that word. So the, the fact of the matter is, is that, that uh, we can carry with us the, the brilliance and the profundity of the book of Job, but there, there are places where the text is a kind of messed up. everybody welcome back to the can i say this at church podcast i am really really excited for today's conversation and so i'm going to belabor all of the normal things the 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 plead to uh, support the show and rate and review the show because you know that you should have already done that you'll find those links at can i say this at church.com and you know fire up the patreon facebook twitter all the places and so here we go Show of hands, how many people have ever translated anything? Your hand is down just like mine. I finished recently wrapping a conversation with Professor Robert Alter. Uh, I recently read a post somewhere online that said, you know, who would intimidate you to talk to? And so, you know, Robert is definitely on the list. And I think you'll hear that trepidation in me repeating questions here in a minute. But the conversation was beautiful. I do not want to belabor any points. And so here we go. Professor Robert Alter. Professor Robert Alter, thank you so much for agreeing to come on to the show. I'm a very big fan of your work. I'm actually looking at a set of your Hebrew Bible that um, was on sale recently, and so I grabbed a copy um, because I could not afford it at full price, but I've really enjoyed it. Um, so welcome, oh, to, w- welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. 
I kind of was pointed in your direction uh, by a few people. One of them was the creator of Bibliotheca, uh, Adam Lewis Green. And in, in talking with him, he had said, you know, you should really look at the work, you know, on biblical narrative and poetry and et cetera by you. And, and before that, I didn't realize who you were, but I, I believe your work has been fairly impactful um, like for, for just theology as a whole. So thank you for that. But for those that are going to have the same problem that I had, um, tell us a bit about yourself. Like what is important as we discuss, you know, biblical narratives and, and thematic elements and whatnot? What is important to know, you know about you as a scholar? Okay, well, uh, I, I started my career strictly as a literary scholar, and uh, in particular, a scholar of modern literature of the European and American novel. Now, I, I happen to um, have known biblical Hebrew, also modern Hebrew, by the way, uh, quite well since, oh, I don't know, about the age of 18. And... Uh, and the Bible always um, uh, enchanted me, uh, but I, I couldn't figure out what was so great about it, given the fact that that uh, it's so sparing in details and seems uh, at times almost simple. And then about 15 years into my career, um, I thought, well, I'm beginning to figure out a few things about how biblical narrative works. So I wrote an article, and the, the article, I was pretty young then, was rather feisty. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I sort of scolded biblical scholars for spending all their time uh, hunting down Akkadian loan words and not knowing how to read a story. And I tried to demonstrate how you read a story by proposing a reading of the the story of uh, Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38 and how it relates to everything around it. Uh, and I thought this was going to be a one-off, but that there was uh, a rather um, a big response to it, letters from readers and so forth. So I said, well, I have a couple of more ideas about biblical narrative, and I'll write uh, another article. And then soon it was four articles, and by that time I saw I was on my way to writing a book about biblical narrative, which came out, um, I guess, 38 years ago, in 1981, and it's been in print ever since. And that kind of drew me into uh, Bible in general, uh, and I wrote a book on... Uh, biblical uh, poetry and a series of articles and then uh, one thing led to another and through a proposal from a publisher I ended up doing a translation of Genesis uh, at, to begin with I didn't really think I was going to do the whole ball of wax but <laughs> I did end up doing that yeah. now maybe I should say something about the importance uh, of uh, biblical narrative. Um, the some people ask, well, uh, if you're talking about something uh, about these uh, writings in literary terms, aren't you misrepresenting the Bible by putting such an emphasis on its literary art uh, and? Uh, 
Here's the thing that I've become convinced of. These Hebrew writers uh, from whatever, from about the year 1100 uh, before the Christian era and onward down to um, around uh, 165 uh, B.C., they, of course, were impelled by uh, powerful religious motives. They had this new vision of monotheism, uh, of uh, one god replacing the many gods, and all that entailed uh, morally and uh, in terms of a a covenant between God and Israel and so forth. That's what they they wanted to talk about. Uh, And that's what everyone has always recognized about the Bible, right? But for for reasons we cannot fathom, they happen to be really in comparison with, with uh, their big neighbors with Egypt and, and the various Mesopotamian kingdoms, which were very sophisticated cultures, uh, far surpassing ancient Israel in, in uh, material culture, but they completely eclipsed their neighbors in literary brilliance. Yeah. And they made the decision to cast their vision of God, creation, history, Israel, the, the moral realm, in highly sophisticated literary narrative and, uh, and great poetry. So my contention over the years has been that in order to see what they want to say about all those grand uh, religious the theological themes, uh, you have to pay more attention to the, the literary vehicle mm-hmm. through which they convey those themes. I want to circle back to a word you said a minute ago, because I'm just going to show my ignorance here. You said Akkadian loan words. What, are, what is that? Oh, well, oh, okay, here's the story. The Bible is full of puzzles. That, that is, words that appear uh, only once or twice in the whole biblical corpus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, scholars over the centuries, including the modern highly informed period when we have archaeology and all that, have been making guesses about what those words mean. And of course, we do want to know to the best of our ability what every word in the Bible means. So sometimes when you um, when scholars come across a, a word that's an enigma, they will look around to the other Semitic languages in the region and say, well, here's a word in Akkadian. Akkadian was the, the, the language of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, that, that's you know over in the 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 area of Mesopotamia. Um, uh, they said, "Well, here's a here's a word uh, in Akkadian that means I, I don't know torrential rain. So maybe this word in, in Ezekiel, which sounds a little bit like it, also means torrential rain. So that, that's what what an Akkadian uh, loan word would, would be now." Uh, I might add to this uh, that this is a tricky road to conclude that if two languages are in contact and words look similar, 
that they mean the same thing in one language as another. I'll give you uh, an example. Let's say in the the, the year uh, 3500, uh, when um, when 21st century English is not known very well, a scholar who knows French very well comes across the puzzling word assist in an English text. And he knows that in French, you have this verb assister, which doesn't mean to help. It means uh, to attend, like to attend the ceremony. So he says, oh, then assist in English must mean to attend the ceremony. And he'd be dead. What do you do with that then? So if it's someone like me um, that doesn't know Hebrew, uh, how do I recognize those when I'm reading scripture? Like if I'm reading that and I don't know the difference, do those uh, words have like an ultimate impact in the overarching narrative or will it not it, necessarily? It depends. Um, uh, I, I would say that if you're reading in translation, of course, there, there's no way to know unless you're reading uh, some kind of annotated translation where uh, an honest translator, and, and there are a number of the translations by committee, uh, which I have a dim view of them, but, but they, they are, some of them are honest in this respect. Uh, they'll uh, put a little note at the bottom, meaning the Hebrew obscure. Mm-hmm. And what I do, because I ended up writing a, a commentary, uh, not just uh, translator's notes, I often explain in in detail, and it it's I think frequently the case that a single word that's obscure isn't going to mess up the understanding of the the whole text. It's maybe just a small local nuance. And to to be Frank, what translators and scholars do often is to make an educated guess based on context. Uh, I'll give you one rather frequent example. Biblical poetry is based on parallelism in meaning. That 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 is the um, the second half of the line somehow echoes, I think it often develops, but it echoes the meaning of the first half of the line. So let's say in the first half of the line, you have a noun that means ship, and everybody knows it means ship. And then in the second half of the line, you have a word that appears only at this point in the whole Bible, and and you don't know what the word means. But you figure it's okay, it's parallel to ship, so it's some kind of sea craft. I want to pivot a bit. So earlier you talk sure. about religious motives and biblical narrative. And so you know, there's a lot of things there that fascinate me that we, can, that we can dovetail into, but I'd rather not. So my question is, I often get the most confused in the metaphorical language of the prophets and how often I feel like they call back to Genesis or they call back to Exodus, or mm-hmm. you know, Jesus, Jesus will call true. back to that. But we read them so flatly. How does one sit down and relate well, you know, with the prophets, or or move past, or or knit together thematically how they all are telling a narrative? Now, I would say this: that this mechanism of say the prophets harking 
back to Genesis or, or the Exodus story or, or whatever it is part of the, the dynamic of all literature. That, that is, all literature, perfectly secular literature as, as well, works by uh, building on its own paths, by taking earlier texts and getting into a dialogue with them, sometimes transforming them. And that happens again and again in the Bible. So what I would invite a serious reader of the Bible to do is when he or she hears an echo of an earlier text, simply for these readers to ask themselves, well, why is uh, this piece of Genesis being uh, invoked in, in Jeremiah. What does it tell us about Jeremiah's intention? So I'll, I'll give you one example. I'm, for the moment, I'm blocking the chapter number, but the, there is a, a passage in Jeremiah in which he in, invokes the, the ghastly devastation that will overtake Israel if Israel does not remain faithful to to its covenant with God. And the way it proceeds is by a a verse-by-verse recollection uh, of of the creation story in Genesis with things turned backward. That that is, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing from rough Mm -hmm. memory, you know, the, the uh, prophet says, and I look to the heavens, and there is no bird flying. I look to the sun, and it has turned dark, and so on and so forth. So what you have here is almost like a a, a, a film pool running backwards, where all the steps of creation that you get in Genesis 1 are being reversed. And the world is being returned to its primordial chaos. Okay, so if you you then ask yourself, and, and I think you don't have to be a profound scholar to do this, but just a thoughtful reader, you ask yourself, well, why is Jeremiah doing this? And he's doing this because he's trying to get across to, to his people the message that. Creation itself is contingent, that, that if humankind doesn't observe its responsible uh, moral stewardship of the world, the world can turn back into chaos. And that's a, a very powerful religious message. No, it is. So I crowdsourced some questions when I told people that I would be speaking with you. Yeah, sure. And, and so somebody had said, you know, they're currently reading through your Genesis translation, currently. And they had some thoughts on the the strengths and weaknesses of those that read the Bible in literal translations. And so I guess, what does literal translation mean as opposed to like a liter, literary narrative approach? And then maybe if you could also, like, what is an example of a literal translation of the Bible and then a translation that would possibly be like a- approaching it from a literal narrative version? Well, what I try to do um, a, uh, a kind of tricky balancing act. That is, I want to make the Bible readable 
as a, a beautifully wrought narrative for the reasons that, that I, I've uh, indicated earlier, mm-hmm. uh, b- because that's what it is in the Hebrew. Uh, and to, to make it sound uh, clumsy or, 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 uh, uh, or bizarre would be violating what the original is like. But I, I try to do this to the best of my ability by hewing closely to the the contours of the the Hebrew. Uh, the, the King James Version does this to a large extent. I, I think I do it even more than, than the, the King James. Although I have to say, I do have a, a lot of respect for the, the King James Version. Um, so, okay, maybe I'll give you, since you mentioned metaphor a couple of minutes ago, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you an example of a literal translation of a metaphor. When Joseph's brothers come to see him in Egypt for the first time, and as you will recall, he knows who they are, but they don't know who he is. He looks like an Egyptian to them. At one point, in anger, he says to them, in my translation, which uh, follows the Hebrew, including the word order, uh, quite literally, the nakedness of the land you have come to see. Now, two or three uh, translations by committee done in the 20th century that I looked at translate this as, you've come to seek out or spy on the weak points in our defense. Now, what have the translators there done? They figure, well, here's a metaphor. It's going to confuse people. People don't understand metaphors anymore, which I think is wrong. (laughs) And uh, so instead of conveying the metaphor, we will represent it in our English version what the metaphor refers to. So they say the weak points in our defense, which may or may not be what, what that metaphor <laughs> refers to. But I preserve the metaphor literally. Why? Because I think it is quite powerful. That, that is, a reader familiar with the Bible knows that to see the nakedness is a, a, a metaphor for taboo sexual relations, like you shall not see your mother's nakedness. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so w- what Joseph is saying to, to his brothers is something that never should be seen by alien eyes you've come to see in, in, in Egypt. And that's why the, the metaphor works so beautifully. And that's the kind of thing that, that I try to do pretty consistently in my translation of the Bible. So I'm glad that you brought up taboo, um, because it's a question that I have, a question I actually spoke about with my pastor a few days ago at our church, and then uh, with a few friends online. So so they're currently going through like a 13-week summer series, just because I honestly, I think, uh, Robert, that the calendar just matches well. But we just finished Nahum, and then we're we're going to Habakkuk next week. Like We're just going through all of the prophets, which has really been enjoyable, because they're throwing in context as they do. It's a challenge. Yeah, well, nobody really... So I find, and I don't know what kind of church you go to, and it doesn't really matter, but so oftentimes people only talk about the easy things, and the things that require too much context that you can't fit in into a 25-minute sermon 
we just can't talk about these because you can't do it justice. Right. And, and a thirteen week series is that's a big I mean that's a big chunk to bite off. But I told him I was like, you know, we should talk about, you know, the wisdom books and Song of Songs and like we just don't talk about any erotic prose or narrative. And so I'm curious your thoughts on that. Like uh, that's a taboo subject. It's rarely if ever talked about. So how does a reader approach those texts in a way that they can learn something because the metaphors there, like I've read some stuff from Robert Williamson where he's like, you know, this isn't really, there's three or four ways to view this, but because we don't talk about it, it's entirely confusing. So what is your take kind of on those erotic prose and those erotic poetry? And how does that relate, I guess, to the narrative of, you know, the Hebrew Bible? Oh, okay. Well, the, the first thing I have to say is that uh, the biblical writers are quite frank uh, about uh, the uh, about erotic matters. That, uh, by the way, this is a kind of tricky challenge in translation. Uh, for example, terms that refer to the sexual act. You will find in the, the modern translations, translators rendering the, the, these terms as to be intimate with, to uh, have relations with, to cohabit with, all, all of which are, are kind of ponderous and don't feel at all like the biblical world. Or one translation I looked at with Potiphar's wife, when she tries to seduce uh, Joseph, has her say to him, make love to me. Which sounds all wrong because it's such a modern uh, locution. It's like a, a, um, a frustrated wife might say to her husband, make love to me, but not a, an ancient Egyptian aristocratic lady, right? Mm -hmm. So the Bible uses very simple terms, which I, I think still work. That, that is to lie with, to come into and to know that, that that is because of the King James Version, which literally translated the, the Hebrew to know as that. It, it's become an established term in English. And of course, we even have a, a kind of legal term, carnal knowledge. Uh, uh, so uh, I, I think that a, a translator needs to respect the, the, the dignity of these references uh, to sex. But as I said, the Hebrew writers are quite frank about this. And um, the, the Song of Songs, which of course both Christians and Jews, as I'm sure you know, have read allegorically. Uh, I myself don't read it uh, mainly allegorically. It's a kind of very exuberant, guilt-free, uh, celebration of the the uh, the joys of sensual love and my own take on, on this is that this is a, a I would say this to believers that this is a, a a gift from God to humanity and there's good reason to celebrate it
if you're not going to read it allegorically for those like me that don't stay up on the English verb verbiage, because we just English is whatever it is on the internet anymore. Uh, but so allegory yeah. is, you know, like a metaphor where you're revealing, you know, some form of hidden meaning, like the message behind the message. So what would be another way to read that text or, t- or text like that? Because there is so much allegory. Um, like I remember asking uh, Professor N.T. Wright about, you know, water wills in the sky, um, I think in Ezekiel. And he's like, I just don't know. Oh, yeah. He's like, I don't know what to do with that. He's like, but I'm just going to really, say, he didn't really answer the question. I was like, what do I do with it? No, it wasn't in T. Wright. It was, it was Brueggemann. But either way, I was like, well, what do I do with this? He's like, I, there's some questions that are great questions that just don't have answers. So how else would you read it if not allegorical? Okay. Now, here's the thing. As I said, both Jews and Christians have gone the road of allegory. There's a, a wonderful moment in the Talmud where there's a, a debate among the the, uh, the sages as to whether the Song of Songs should be included uh, in Scripture. And uh, w- one of the great early sages, Rabbi Akiva, sa- says, if all the writings are holy, then the Song of Songs <clears throat> is holy of holies by which he he clearly meant that it was a a sacred allegory. Uh, From the Jewish point of view, it's about the love between God and the community of Israel. In the Christian allegory, it's the love between Christ and the Church. And uh, the allegorical reading has it is beautiful in its way. And I don't dismiss people who choose to read it that way. Uh, and probably without the allegory, it, it wouldn't have gotten into the canon. But I think that the original meaning, I suppose not the only meaning, but the original meaning of uh, of, of these poems is the love between uh, a young man and a young woman. And love and love poetry were part of the the, the cultural experience uh, of uh, ancient Israel, uh, and these poems are so expressive uh, of that experience uh, of balancing a kind of refinement w- with frank sensuality that that uh, that I, I think that the people didn't want to let go of those poems. So they were preserved in the canon, and then to make them fit better into the overall religious impulse of the canon, it became a practice, as I say, for both the Christian and the Jewish communities to read them allegorically. Many, and so I'm going to use the word sola scriptura, only because I think it matters when you're translating the Bible. So I, I get a lot of pushback from people when I say, you know, I don't necessarily believe the Bible is literally always trying to say what you think it's saying. But as you're reading through translations, what would you say to someone that says, you know, you know, Robert, if you're going to retranslate the Bible, or really anyone, the words, and I hear you earlier, you know, there's words that really only exist in a handful of places, and we're just guessing. So how can someone that really wants to rest in the, the I guess, the safety net of a sola scriptura mentality, how can they wrestle with scripture in a way that they're going to allow themselves maybe to, to see new insights that they didn't see before without really dealing with trauma or without with, with, with intentionally dealing with 
because there's a small little loss of fidelity there, I think, for a lot of people, you know, as they're wrestling with things, they're like, wait, it has, it has four meanings? Uh, this isn't acceptable. I, I need just this one. Like, how would, you, how would you advise, you know, if a student was asking you that? Okay. Well, uh, to begin with, uh, this goes back to our discussion uh, of the invocation of Akkadian loan words, now mm-hmm. that we understand what those are. Mm-hmm. There are going to be places where there's a word that appears only once in the entire Bible, uh, and there doesn't seem any convincing etymology to relate it to something we know. Uh, And at best, we can only guess by context. Uh, And and that's just built in. Uh, Now, a second thing that I hope this won't disconcert some of your readers, but um, ancient texts, this is true uh, of the, the Greek and the Latin as well as uh, the, the Hebrew, um, are uh, copied by scribes. And the scribes, uh, you know, generations of scribes, you know, one generation of scribes copying the work of a preceding generation. And uh, the fact is, that scribes are human, and scribes make mistakes in copying, unfortunately. And I can attest to this because <laughs> I've discovered quite a few times in my own translation that my eye has skipped over a word, which is something that, that scribes do. Mm-hmm. So this means, uh, and there's not much to save this part of Scripture, that... that um, being an ancient text copied uh, by hand from one generation to another, there are places where the text got scrambled, uh, and it's very hard to unscramble it. Uh, the the um, maybe the best example in, in uh, the, the Hebrew Bible is um, Job. I mean, Job is a very powerful book, uh, brilliant poetry, maybe the most brilliant poetry in the the whole Hebrew Bible. Um, But the the Job poet uses a a much bigger vocabulary than any other biblical poet, which means that he often uses words that don't appear anywhere else. And the ancient scribes when what a scribe does when he's copying a text if he comes across a word that is unfamiliar to him he may uh, substitute a familiar word and by that scramble the text or or he may simply get confused and and do something odd with with that word so the the fact of the matter is that that uh we can carry with us the the brilliance and the profundity of the book of job but there there are places where the text is a kind of messed up yeah so that is a built-in problem and it's something as i say that maybe lay readers of the bible don't like to think about because it, it, uh, as you your question suggests 
it would the the whole idea of it would make them a little uncomfortable. Yes, <laughs> but uh, it just part part. It goes with the territory. Yeah. And if and correct me if I'm wrong, but you did your current translation by hand, correct? And then I assume it was someone else's job to type that up, and that's a big job. Right, but you right. did it. You did it by hand. Yeah, I did. That's insane. <laughs> that is absolutely insane. Uh, I'm curious with your with your training in narrative and uh, and literature outside of biblical texts. What are some of the ways that you know the Hebrew Bible that we have now, and and maybe the New Testament Bible as well? Although I'm not sure where your training ends, has drawn from other texts that we have maybe forgotten about or just pass over, and so because of that, we maybe lose some of the meaning. You you mean my training in other texts? Yes. Okay. Uh, let me give you one example. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I've been focused uh, in my uh, general literary studies mostly on the novel. Uh, a uh, Something that is observable in the novel, maybe beginning in, in the 19th century with, with the so-called art novel, is that many writers choose to build their novels by weaving in from one episode to, to another um, a recurring image or motif. For example, in Flaubert's Madame Bovary, the first time we see Emma Bovary, she has a parasol, uh, and uh, the sun is shining through it, and the parasol is blue, and it casts a blue light uh, on her face. And then we find that the color blue keeps coming back in uh, in the novel. Uh, her fantasies, uh, her romantic fantasies, involve blue distances and so on and so forth. So th- this is something that I was alerted to early in my training or my reading uh, as a student of literature. And then I came to Genesis and I saw that something quite similar is going on. For example, in the Jacob Joseph story, garments are very important almost from beginning to end. That is, uh, Jacob first uh, deceives his father to steal uh, the blessing by wearing his brother's clothes. Then Jacob's sons deceive their father by taking this coat of many colors in the King James Version that the fathers made as a gift to Joseph, dipping it in blood and bringing it to him and saying that wild beast has uh, devoured him. Then we have the change of garments in the Joseph story from prison garb to royal raiment and so on and so forth. I I, I don't want to hold forth too long, but, but mm-hmm. you see how mm-hmm. a, a long stretch of story is tied together by this. Uh, oh, and and of course the the uh, I should mention the w- one prime example that when Potiphar's wife assaults Joseph, she tears the garment off his back and he runs naked outside, uh, and then she. Uh, sets the uh, the garment alongside her, and uh, when the people of the household answer her screams, she says, look, he took off his garment to assault me, when, of course, the, the real fact is that she tore the garment off him. 
<laughs> so it, it becomes a, a crucial evidentiary fact. Yeah. So you see what I mean? That, that something that I learned from reading Flaubert or and James Joyce uh, pops up uh, almost 3,000 years earlier in the Hebrew Bible. I want to end with this, because my time is coming quickly to a close, and so I must think yours yeah, is as sure. well. One of the things that Adam had said, I'd asked him a question, and he'd said, I'm going to try to paraphrase something that I think Robert has said in the past. But I like the way that it lenses the way that we should methodically and intentionally sit with uncomfortability in Scripture, but also read with the lens of, of a little bit more beauty. And so one of the things that he said is, the thing about the Hebrew Bible, you know, when it's held up to the New Testament, or I think he was also arguing, you know, really any, uh, many other large libraries of, of, of text, are that it's just a level of artistry that is achieved in the Hebrew Bible that is rarely, if ever, reached elsewhere in Scripture. So I'm curious if you could break that down a bit. So if that is true, um, and, that par- and, and hopefully it is, that paraphrase is true, because I didn't fact check it, I didn't know where to look. How can I, you know, I'm sitting down and I'm going to pull out and I'm just going to randomly open up and, you know, just, you know, I'm going to wrestle with Jonah today or I'm going to wrestle with Second okay. Kings today. Like, how do I read scripture in a way to, to just kind of read that beauty as opposed to that flat reading? Um, for those listening that are going to turn it off, grab a Bible and be like, all right, let's see what Robert's actually talking about. Okay, I have one rule of thumb. It won't cover all cases, but it covers a surprising number of cases. One of the primary procedures, artful procedures, uh, in both poetry and narrative in the Bible is repetition that looks like repetition, but turns out not to be exact repetition. And where it's not exact repetition, something revelatory happens. Uh, for example, and this is by, by no means the, the only category, but on the microscopic level, um, again and again in uh, Hebrew narrative, you have, um, let's say, a narrator saying something <clears throat> and, or, or one of the characters and then another character says something, and it looks like um, exactly the same words. But if you read it carefully, and, and for this, you, you, as long as the translation doesn't play games with, with the original, and I try not to play games, uh, you can do this in translation. Uh, when there's a repetition, most of the time, it's, it looks like an exact repetition, but it's not. Sometimes one word will be changed or the order of words or something will be subtracted or something will be added. And that always tells you something important about what's going on in the story. So when uh, when Joseph is falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of attempted rape, she tells the people in the, of the household uh, that, that um, the the uh, the Hebrew man that he brought to her, he being her husband, which she doesn't call him by name or, or title, but contemptuously he, uh, the, who brought to us, came into me to um, play with me, to mock me. It's a double meaning word. Now, uh, when she, when her husband comes home. She tells 
him exactly the same story in almost exactly the same words. But instead of saying the Hebrew man, she says the Hebrew slave. Now, why the difference between her two versions, just in that one word? Well, when she's talking to uh, the people, the workers in her estate, uh, on her estate, uh, she's talking to people who are no doubt slaves. And she doesn't want to remind them of Joseph's slave status, but the fact that he's uh, an Egyptian, uh, I'm sorry, a Hebrew man, you know, one of those wild Semites from the north who are all rapists, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas when, when she talks to her husband, she shifts the grounds just in that one word, because otherwise she's repeating what she said verbatim. But instead of a Hebrew man, she calls him a Hebrew slave, because when to her husband, she wants uh, him to be conscious of the fact that, that a mere slave, someone who's his, his property, had the, the audacity to attempt to assault her. Yeah. So you see, it, it's a little thing, but it's quite beautiful, uh, and it gives you a much more vivid sense of what's going on in the interaction between the characters. Well, and it makes me ask questions I don't have time to answer, but I'll ask them here, and we won't answer them, but I'll ask them intentionally. You know, the it makes me wonder of the metaphor of and, and the part of the story of you know nakedness calls back to how you know often Israel is stripped naked uh, or, or or laid bare after sins are exposed, and uh, you know the way that we view humanity today, you know, what that story has to talk about with, you know, uh -huh. the way that I view other people and whether or not they have value to have their voice be heard. Um, but we won't, we won't go there. That's a big topic. Yeah. Yeah. Bigger topics. Yeah. That, that's a four hour topic. And I think my internet connection is proven today. It is not going to cooperate for that. Okay. Um, so thank you for your grace with that. Where would you point people to, Professor, uh, that you know want to get a hold of your work and want to read more? And honestly, I'm curious, are there a place to go back and see those original articles that you referenced at the beginning? I wrote them down um, that you had some, and I am happy to Google that. Um, but I'm curious if there's like a, a place to go. The, the, art the original articles I put together in... Uh, a book, not a very long book, maybe it's about 230 pages, called The Art of Biblical Narrative. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I revised that somewhat, um, not fundamentally, I did expand a few things here and there, modify a few statements uh, back in, I think, 2000. 11, 11 yeah. 2012, somewhere around then. Uh, and it's available in, in a paperback, so uh, uh, under the imprint of basic books, so it's not very expensive. And, uh, and I think uh, I try in all my writing not to use uh, academic jargon and not to be highly technical. So I, I think uh, an open-minded reader can follow it well enough and it would give that reader, uh, I think, a certain handle on how biblical narrative works. And really, uh, I, I do try to write in a, uh, an accessible uh, and lively way without technical language. And uh, my aim really is to give readers a kind of toolkit that is after they read the book on biblical narrative, can they take those tools and 
go read other biblical narratives mm-hmm. beyond the ones I discuss and read them more fully. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's that book, which is surmising that, and then how do they find more about you? You know, they're inclined and they're like, I need to know more about this. Where is there like a repository of just all the places to go to? Is there an easy way to access your stuff? Well, I, I've never set up a, a website. Uh, uh, there, um, uh, let me see. If you go to uh, the website of the Department of Comparative Literature at the University of California, uh, there's, uh, you know, um, they've got the CV. one paragraph uh, uh, bio on me. Perfect. Uh, and, um, uh, Otherwise, uh, one can always, uh, I'm not recommending purchases, but one can, can go to, uh, under my name to Amazon Books and see what I've written that's out there. Well, I would recommend, (laughs) I would recommend purchases. Um, the only reason I know that that most recent version is 2011 is because I recently bought it. Um, but then when you said that they were older, I was like, this sounds familiar. And then I looked at the copyright and it said 2011. I was like, well, this has to be something different. So I appreciate that clarification. Well, Robert, in fear of the internet breaking again, I'm going to thank you now. Yes, we better. I'm, I'm going to thank you now continue. for coming on. It was very nice talking with you. Thank you, Robert. Man, I am mm, so happy to have been able to speak to Robert, and I have about 5,000 more questions to talk to him about, and maybe that'll happen one day. For those of you that are Patreon supporters of the show, you will know how hard this one was to edit. The internet broke like 29 times. It's the closest I think I've ever come to literally just yelling at the computer. Anyway, it is a privilege to be able to do this. I would really encourage you to go and get some of the writings of Robert Alter. Those books that we talked about right at the very end, um, I'll put a link to that book in the show notes. They're brilliant. So I bought them since discussing with Robert and really, really good books. And I cannot recommend enough his Hebrew Bible translation with commentary. It is, and it is a, a love labor, labor of love, however you say that. I hope that you got as much out of that as I did. I cannot wait for the next time that we're together. I hope that you're all blessed.